Before we get into the interview with Daniel Rama and Shakti, I would like to announce the release of my course, Meditation 101, How to Build and Deepen Your At-Home Practice, which is coming out on October 3rd of this year. You can sign up right now on BradenMcKenzie.com to be notified of release of the course. There will be early bird pricing available for a full week leading up to the release day. There will also be a giveaway happening near the end of September with some great prizes, including one full access to the entire course and also a five-day meditation challenge leading up to October 3rd. This interview with Daniel Rama and Shakti is the first part in a three-part series I am releasing with my greatest mentors in the practice of meditation. Upcoming, after this interview, I will be interviewing Dylan Werner and also Lauren Ekstrom. So look forward to those in the coming weeks. Now, let's get to the interview. Uh, So I think I'll just do like a a short introduction for the sake of the recording, and then we'll just move into the discussion after that. Okay, that sounds perfect. Uh, So welcome everybody to Into Stillness. Uh, This is usually a guided meditation podcast, but today we're taking a step away from that, and we're going to be having an actual real discussion about meditation. Uh, With the coming of my course, Meditation 101, at the beginning of October, I have the pleasure of discussing the topic with my greatest mentors in the practice. And with me today, uh, I'm very lucky to have Daniel Brahma and Shakti on the podcast. So welcome, guys. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super happy to have you on. Thanks for having us. It's always a pleasure to chat, Uh Maybe just if people don't know who you are, just you know, give a brief description. Maybe tell them about Becoming Balanced if you want to. Sure. Well, I'm Rama Shakti, and together we are Becoming Balance, which is an organization that we created a few years ago with the idea of impacting global development through personal improvement. So we run programs associated with yoga, movement, mindfulness. These can be workshops, retreats, or the Becoming Balance yoga teacher trainings. Uh, We've been doing this for number of years together, a number of years before that as well. I think this one has like, how many hours of formal training do you actually have? On too the many. Well, far too, too many. many. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's our purpose and our pleasure to serve in this way and try to, try to s- spread the message a little bit. I yeah, nicely, nicely said. I think uh, <laughs> a lot of what we do, we pull people into deeper practices by showcasing more physical things that people are really attracted to. So people want to learn how to hand balance and whatnot. So they come to us with that expectation. And then what we do is we kind of give them a segue into the more powerful practices of meditation and uh, things that will be essentially way more beneficial than something like a handstand. Uh, but our skill sets are unique in such that we can appeal to um, the type of audience that might not necessarily know that they need meditation or other practices in their life. Yeah, I, I can confirm that's very successful because I saw Rama doing a bunch of crazy shit. And that's the only reason that I ended up at uh, the Bali training, to be honest. So, there you go. Same, same thing happened to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very effective. Um, so to start off, I think I hear a lot of people discuss how they got into the physical aspect of yoga and all that. But I don't hear a lot of people 
tell their story of the subtle practice. So when they started meditation and how it's kind of evolved and become a greater part of their life. So I think I'd maybe like to hear a little bit about your guys' journey uh, into the practice of meditation. Sure. Do you want to go first? Sure. <laughs> I actually went to university in Colorado, a university called Naropa. And so I actually got to take yoga classes. Like my major was traditional Eastern arts with a concentration in yoga. So I specifically had meditation courses. Every aspect of yoga, I had classes on those topics. So I would literally go into class. We'd all sit on cushions. We'd bow in and out of the class. We'd have to log our meditation. But I, I wasn't in a place where I was able to receive that kind of teaching. I would literally just sit there and just like visualize what kind of handstand sequences I would be trying after class. Or I would literally leave the room and go do handstands in the hallway. Uh, it was like I had so many great teachers there and people wanting in a very sincere way to develop their practice. But I wasn't really there yet. Uh, I was focusing so much on wanting to become a physical yoga teacher and um, do physical things. So meditation was more like, that sounds so easy. I can't believe I get to do that in college. Like, that's great. Uh, yeah. I found out it was incredibly challenging. I couldn't sit still. Um, so that was like many years ago at this point. It's taken me a very long time of trial and error and wanting to start the practice, but not necessarily being at a point in my development personally that I was able to have that type of practice. Um, then fast forward a few years, I, I met him. I moved to the ashram because he described this like wonderful, magical place that's so much fun and awesome. And <laughs> anybody who's been there knows it's a wonderful place, but it's a, it's a challenging place. Um, so you're forced into those practices. You're not really, you can't, nobody's entertaining the idea that you're just off doing handstands instead of doing your spiritual practice, sitting down for meditation. So that was kind of my first experience of being forced into these like 30 minute long periods of meditation. It was excruciating, physical pain, mentally, it was hard. Um, so I stepped away for a while and then I just, it's something that's always pulled me back. Like I've always returned back to it for whatever reason. I just feel that kind of pull. It's very magnetic for me. Um, and now we have a place of our own and I have a morning seated practice. I sit without trouble. Um, it's just kind of a non-negotiable. It's not something that I'm forcing myself to do, which was the case in the past. I was dreading it, forcing myself to do it. I hated it. I was uncomfortable. Uh, and now it's just something that brings me a lot of peace, a lot of um, grounding, good way to start my day. And yeah, I've come quite a long way, which is something I think I can feel quite proud of because I didn't really think it would happen for me. So it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah, no, that's one way to put it. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's beautiful. Um, for myself, I came to the practice with a physical need. I had this injury while I was studying health, wellness, and fitness that was supposed to steal my ability to run. So I wanted to try to heal my body. And I was doing all sorts of things, but eventually, as a last resort, I started to look closer at yoga. And for me, I started almost all dimensions of the practice simultaneously. So the proper exercise, the proper breathing, proper diet, proper relaxation, and meditation, they all came into my experience right away, uh, largely thanks to my father, who was uh, taking his yoga teacher training just a few years before this injury took place. So my exposure to yoga was uh, holistic and immediate in the sense that it wasn't 
too much towards the physical side. It wasn't too much towards, I don't know if you could be actually too much towards the meditative side. I think that's, you can always have more of that side. But uh, for me, this is how the exposure went. And soon after my exposure, I moved to this ashram that Shakti mentioned, which, as she mentioned, was a place that's uh, very, very interesting to live at. It's on an island called Paradise Island, and you've got these beautiful Bahamian beaches. But really, that ashram is designed to bring you face to face with your inner demons, at least if you live there for longer than three months. I stayed there for almost two years. And so, as she mentioned, being forced to do certain sadhana, also I was being groomed for this life of brahmacharya, where I would be essentially living in this ashram, dedicating my whole life to my teachers and to my service. And so they were uh, instructing me to do many, many things throughout the day that perhaps I felt to be a little bit mundane. So... When I went into meditative techniques on my own, it was very easy to find some benefit. But then continuing my journey, those same practices were almost forced on me in such a way where I felt that I didn't have a choice. So then I started to feel myself retract from them a little bit. So it's important to understand that even my experience with meditation has been a bit of a roller coaster where you're always figuring things out, deciding what perhaps you would want to leave at the door because uh, these practices, you take them all as a grain of salt. Whatever you feel that is most relevant and applicable to your life, you implement them. So for me, it's been constantly evolving over the years to where my practice present day is very subtle. It's uh, more so just the state of mind that I walk around with for the majority of the time and then everything else that I do is a bonus. Like asanas, maybe some days, pranayama, almost every day. But then a certain state of mind, which is a result of meditation, this is the constant. And I think in many ways, that's what we're working towards as well, is attaining this just baseline level of operation where we're able to see things a little bit clearly. That, that's how I hope I'll start to see the world. Yeah, no, that kind of sounds like it ties into um, like your science of asana series you have on the, the app, the whole like asana energetics part. I mean, that kind of sounds like how you're moving into your meditation practice, like you're trying to apply that. It's kind of like a pretty abstract concept for a lot of people who don't understand it. So maybe you could just give a little information on it and how it applies to the practice of meditation. Sure. Well, in a nutshell, the yogi say we have these three bodies. We have a physical body, which is this one that you see here. We have then a subtle body, which contains the lower mind, higher mind, and the energetic system. And then we have a causal body, which is our seed body. It's the most subtle. And the yogis say that these bodies, they are sustained by the more subtle forms. So this physical body is sustained by the subtle and the causal body. And you might notice that sometimes you experience physical disease, physical symptoms, and you're not really sure what is the cause. Perhaps you go to the doctor and they try to treat you, but your symptoms keep coming back and the doctor is not knowing exactly why your symptoms keep coming back. But it's because the root of the issue lies within a more subtle body. It lies likely within part of your astral self. 
And so if you're able to influence the energetic body in such a way that it becomes greatly vibrant, then your physical body will start to sustain itself in a similar way. So any good things that you find present in your astral body, any bad things you find present in your astral body, those will have a ripple effect. And if you understand a little bit this ripple effect and you know how to work with the subtle energies, then you can actually enhance your physicality by doing things that are not necessarily physical. So the science of asana is all about how we use these postures, which are not supposed to be like an exercise kind of thing. These asanas are designed to impact the system on a very subtle level. And if you can establish a certain impact, then you can grow with a very, very small amount of effort. It really doesn't take so much to develop just a basic level of uh, physical well-being. This you can do, the yogis would say, with three postures, really, with headstand, shoulder stand, and Paschimottanasana. These are the big three. In a nutshell, this is the, the science of asana, the series you mentioned. Yeah, no, I've kind of found that ever since, uh, like I've done like the, the sadhana series and stuff. Like I used to be completely obsessed with just doing everything that's as hard as possible, essentially. And like, I mean, Shakti, I'm sure she can, <laughs> she can agree, but it's like ever since I've started doing and like slowing down a bit, like even the last three weeks, I injured my wrist doing way too many handstands. So I've been just doing a very subtle amount of stuff. And I've found, whereas before I'd be like so anxious that I'm not doing anything. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to lose everything I've achieved. But now it's like, like nothing's changed. I just, I try to do the same stuff I would have done a month ago yesterday. I can still do it. So it's not like, you know, you lose everything, but I do love the whole, uh, the subtle aspect to uh, Hatha yoga. And, you know, I do love the science of asana series is really, really interesting to me. Even without getting into all of this energetic stuff, even if you just commit to a little bit of relaxation daily, this will also make your ability to gain strength or lose weight. It'll make it much more efficient. So just a yeah. little bit of time to it's so simple. Lie down on your back. You'll feel great. When you feel great, your body performs at a higher capacity. Your mind performs at yeah. a higher capacity. So yeah, it's not always about the uh, the hard work. It's about the intelligent work. Yeah. Actually, at the ashram, when I was spending a month there a couple of years ago during the teacher training, I felt like I was more sedentary than I had ever been in my life. Like sitting for so long in every class, we'd have like basically one session of an asana practice where you, you do some sun salutations, but the rest of it is, yeah. you know, the sequence. And I felt like so much anxiety around like I do all these physical things and I, I need to do them. So I basically did none of what I was used to doing. I had a photo shoot at the very end, like during the last week. And I was physically capable of the craziest shit I've ever done. And I hadn't trained any of those things. I've literally been sitting doing shoulder stands. <laughs> yeah. It blew my mind, but if I didn't experience that, then I probably wouldn't have believed it if somebody told me that was going to happen or be possible. Yeah, I know. It's pretty wild. I was, when I took that course with uh, Shivananda online and we did the, like the Hatha yoga practice with the different people, like I could clearly recognize where the becoming balance uh, sequence was inspired by, but like, I'm assuming that's essentially what they do every day if they do it. Essentially, yes. there's two breathing exercises. Of yeah. course, 
initial relaxation course, a little yeah. shamasana before you start anything. Then some chanting, then two breathing exercises, 12 sun salutations, and 12 basic postures with the final relaxation at the end. Yeah. No, it was pretty, it was, it was a very interesting. Yeah. Um, so you guys, I'm assuming you both practice, uh, you do your morning practice together, I, I would assume. Yeah, usually just right over here. Most yeah, days. Glass box difference. Do you find a difference doing it together as opposed to doing it by yourself? Because I know it's even on the couple court, like teacher trainings that I've done, when you're meditating in a room full of 30 people, plus, you know, the teacher, there's a clear difference than meditating by yourself. And like for yourselves, you've been together for many years now. I'd assume you maybe notice a difference meditating in a room together as opposed to meditating alone. Go ahead. It's, it's so nice. Like we, we have a, our own different practices that we do. So we definitely like have, we ride the wave of doing our own thing, but um, developing this time where we actually sit side by side or he's doing a puja like behind me where I'm doing sun salutations. Uh, it's a very special time. It's, uh, it's really nice because we are both so connected to these practices yet we're so different like personally. Yeah. So it's just to kind of have that time where we just get to be one and enjoy the practice. It's for me, it's quite special. I really, I really love it. For me too. But I will say there was a bit of a curve of me um, kind of getting over. I was thinking at first because my sadhana, it involves a lot of sound and some of it is, uh, I would think, quite annoying, actually, from a third person's perspective. So, you know, she's sitting there and she's all peaceful and quiet. And I'm making all of these crazy sounds thinking like I'm just disturbing this yeah. all the time. So for me, it, it took a minute to realize that, yeah, she's, she's doing her practice regardless of the sounds that are coming out of my mouth. Um, but yeah, present, presently, it's such a nice thing just to wake up, make the bed, tend to hygiene, sit down together, no words being said. We go through our practice and then afterwards it's like, okay, now the day can begin. What a wonderful thing. And the sun is always rising while this is happening. So like we're in this little glass box having our morning practice and the sun's rising. The sky's insane. And it's like the most wonderful time. And with the quarantine and everything, like, you know, there's really no structure in the day. You can come and yeah. go, it's easy to do whatever. Um, but at a certain point, we were like, okay, we need to make adjustments. What is it that we're, we're lacking in our lives? And it was like, we need to get up at the same time every day and make our morning practice just a non-negotiable. This is something that's a part of us and what we do no matter where in the world we are. Yeah. Um, I think that both of us experience like a tremendous, just like, it's like a weight is lifted when you start your day that way. Like anything else could happen. You just start out from a place of just, calm and contentment, which is a really beautiful thing. Yeah, no, I agree. If I don't do anything in the morning, I feel super weird. <laughs> yeah, just like a, what to do with the rest of your day, you know? Yeah, you might as well start off on a high note, to be honest. Yeah, I, while I was um, making certain transitions in my own life, I always said that the morning hours, as far as I was concerned, those are the only hours that exist in the day. And I use those hours to do what I feel I need to in order to improve. And if I just take the, those you know, 90 minutes to two hours, even shorter in the beginning, maybe just 10 to 30 minutes, if that's all that you have, 
But you take that period and that, if you tend to it properly, that is a complete day. And everything else that you do, that's just gravy. That's just bonus. Bonus, yeah. I think if he wasn't there, I would still get up and do my morning practice and it would still be something that is like sacred to me and helps me to improve. But yeah. then like, yeah, put us in the room with like the Becoming Balance family and sit down for meditation. And that is like a next level kind of energy that you experience. So it is yeah. nice just the two of us. It's nice when it's just me, but like, I love that feeling of just being in it with everyone. Even if somebody's sitting there planning their handstand sequence, I don't know that. I feel the energy is good. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's definitely, you can definitely feel it when there's 30 people sitting in a room all doing the same thing. Well, I mean, it helps when there's uh, the sun coming up in Bali, but I mean, you know, know it it could be any room, I assume. This is even an interesting, so we're talking about collective sadhana, of course, where everybody benefiting just by being in proximity with other people doing that same sadhana. And in an interesting way, you know, I monitor the stats on the Becoming Balance app all the time. And I actually see that there are certain trends with regards to some of the practices. So we have like anywhere from 200 to 400 people practicing with us every day to the app. And a lot of those people are doing the same thing at the same time, which is interesting. I'm not sure if people can pick up on that simple fact that they're doing the exact same thing as some random person in Switzerland at the same time of the day. But I think we can even find this collective sadhana without the need for physical proximity. I think that more and more as things shift online, we're kind of finding ways to connect beyond just the limitations of, of space. So it's an interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, that's really, that's actually <laughs> super interesting. Um, so do you both do, like, you introduced me to Joppa on, at the Becoming Balanced training. Is that something that the ashram introduced you to? Is that something both of you do? Is it, you know, consistent? We both do it, and it's certainly a consistent thing. Uh, Japa it can take on different forms. So the ashram introduced me to, introduced us, I think, to a traditional form of Japa where you're seated, you have a Japa mala, you're just repeating mentally, the rounds of whatever is your chosen mantra. Um, But we can also utilize japa in an ongoing kind of context. Just throughout the day, if you notice the mind is drifting away to places that you would prefer it not drift off to, then still mentally you can repeat your mantra throughout the day. So there's many, many different ways that you can utilize this science, um, but it's one of the most accessible one of the easiest, uh, you really don't need anything and you don't need to have any special physical qualities. This is a practice that's easy for literally everyone. So yeah, Swami Vishnu Devananda who created the Shivananda organization, he was saying that it's the most applicable form of meditative technique for modern populations. And I think I would have to agree with that. It's very, very accessible. And I think you've had a great experience with Japa as well. Yeah, I yeah, it's pretty much all I do now. Good. Yeah. I I, I kind of like before the becoming balanced training, I kind of just felt like I was like trying to do something I didn't understand fully. It, it was it's a weird feeling. Like even my first teacher training, I had to do 30 hours of meditation and record all of it before I went on the actual training. But like even that, I feel like I didn't get 
as much understanding as once uh, you introduced it and explained it. And then I start doing job. I don't, that's just how I, for some reason, it just connected with me, I think. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a lot of people when they start to have a meditation practice, some of them know what meditation is and that it's an absence of mind. It's an absence of thought and to completely stop your thought, to completely transcend your mind is a difficult if not impossible thing to do from an untrained state. You can't just walk into this practice, sit down and go off into some state of samadhi. Unless you have extremely good karma, that's just not going to happen. So instead of shutting off the mind, it's important to give it something productive to do. So it's not about shutting off the mind. It's just about becoming single-pointed. In this japa practice, is an extremely efficient way to go about that. You choose a mantra that you love, that resonates with you, either in the form of a sound vibration or in the meaning of the mantra or perhaps the deity that is behind that mantra. So you find some way to draw yourself to this particular practice. And then whenever the mind drifts away, you just bring it back, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back until eventually your mind doesn't drift. Your mind is just naturally single-pointed. And when that happens, then maybe you can do some things associated with uh, true meditation, with this transcending of the mind. So it's an extremely good uh, starting point and actually ending point. Meditation, Japa meditation particularly, will move through all of the last internal limbs. So it can start out just as concentration, but actually in higher forms result in that meditative state, which uh, is unlike most other forms of meditation. You know, this one is a very, very special practice. I had the same experience as you, Braden. I didn't even realize it. Like when I was in college, yeah. they weren't, I did learn Japa as part of like my Hatha yoga training in college, but my meditation classes were not taught about Japa. They were um, a different form and I just didn't connect to it at all. Like yeah. in my mind, I was ready for it and maybe not, but also it just wasn't something that, I don't know, was tangible for me that helped me really connect to the practice. It's, Japa is super special. Yeah. Yeah, I think like the whole incorporation of like the mantra is definitely, it makes it feel like something more sacred than me just focusing on my breath per se. Personally, anyway, I know there's a lot of people that that's perfectly fine for and they can do that for the entire life, but I kind of wanted something maybe a little deeper, yeah. essentially. Yeah, I mean, the breath is obviously a very beautiful thing. You know, when this stops flowing, then we stop yeah. living this yeah. life. So it's obviously very special. But, uh, you know, it's constantly there. It, it's a good tie to the present moment. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, you want something that's perhaps a little bit more uh, like a ritual, you know, that feels like something special yeah. to you. The breath should, should feel special too. Yeah. But mantra, I think it's easier because we're not always in it, you know? Yeah. No, like I... I, I sorry, are you going to say something? No, go ahead. <laughs> Like even when I, I find myself just focusing on the breath, it's like, I think because uh, I focus on it, honestly, so much, it's easier for me to just like bypass it mm. in, in a way. Like I can think while focusing on my breath, no problem on like 10 different things at once. Yeah. I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel that. I just remembered, which just seems so funny to me when I was learning meditation in college, they would 
tell us to sit there and when you have a thought, label it. I am thinking. This is a thought. It's like, no wonder I didn't have a growth from that. It's like, like sounds so silly to me. It's like, I, like label it so that you can like kind of put it aside and come back to meditation. What did I, mean, I think for school? That's, yeah, that's a little <laughs> different. <laughs> yeah, I know. I will thank God for Java. <laughs> no, I agree. Um, so I guess, do you have, guys have any advice for someone who has maybe never touched the practice of meditation or maybe is considering it or, you know, anything of like that for beginners, essentially, what would you tell them? First thing that comes to mind for me is make yourself comfortable. Like, don't feel like you have to sit in Lotus on the floor, like elevate your hips, like support your knees if needed, like make sure that you're not just initially when you sit down, you're not just like my body's in pain because if that's the case, you're not really going to be able to focus on yeah. anything other than that. So just for starters, like it's okay to not have that perfect picture of what a person meditating should look like in your mind or you see online. Um, it's not like that. <laughs> Elevate your hips, get comfortable. Um, that's, I think maybe step one for me. Yeah. And that would apply to absolutely everyone as well. If your body is is shouting at you during the practice of any sort of seated meditation or pranayama also, or asana as well. If your body's constantly giving you feedback, you're not going to be able to do anything. So in many ways, the practice of asana is just about healing your body to the point where it shuts up. If, yeah. When that happens, then meditation is much, much easier. But as far as uh, a little bit of advice, it would also be dependent upon someone's temperaments. So myself, for example, I'm very much a goal-oriented person, and I like to have something that I'm working towards or something that I'm working to overcome. And when I first came to the practice, I had a goal, prove the doctors wrong. I wanted to be able to run again when they told me that I couldn't. And so everything that I did in my life, it came back to that one goal. So the food that I'm eating, is it going to help me run again? Uh, the things that I'm doing with my body, are they going to help me run again? The practices that I'm including with my mind, are they going to help me run again? So when you identify what type of temperament you have, for most people, it can be quite, quite beneficial to identify why you want to meditate. Why, what benefit do you think will come from the practice? If you can really focus on that a little bit, then maybe it will help inspire you and motivate you to do these things on a daily basis. Because this is when you really find quick, rapid, strong benefit is if you adopt it as a lifestyle. So yeah, and for some people, perhaps that might be overbearing. So for some people, perhaps you might wanna take a slightly different approach. This is why we need to be really, really honest with ourselves as far as who I am, what am I naturally drawn to, what maybe is something that I should avoid. It's good to just get to know ourselves on this more intimate level and then progress, it's going to be relative to you and chances are it will happen quicker than it otherwise would. Yeah. You know, I really do want to like promote this is just, it's just something to add to your day. Like, I don't want people to think, oh, I'm going to start meditating. It's going to fix everything. But it really has to be 
a full practice that you have in your day, not just not just sitting down. I just I believe that there's so much of the the physical out there. I like I really want to promote this. If for some reason, this is what I turned to. I mean, I I came to yoga, you know, and I wanted to be all physical. I wanted to be out in yoga studios teaching, you know, the physical practice. But here I am, and I have a course on meditation. So for some yeah. reason, that's just you know where I ended up. So I really do think that promoting this practice to as many people as possible is definitely seems to be my path at the moment. Well, and you've taken like yoga teacher trainings with the most. Uh physically impressive if i do say so myself <laughs> not just us, but dylan warner of course as well you you yeah. can draw on to the, the physical uh addicts yeah and it, it, in many ways it, it resonates with my role because also you you have certain physical abilities that people will wish to learn from you but you also have the capacity for something deeper so this is kind of your your niche you know yeah. <laughs> as well as ours we're in the same niche yeah no it's pretty great um yeah i don't think i have any more questions really you know i just want to i just want to thank you guys for taking the time to do this with me you know i'm really appreciative uh i love you guys you know you're two of the most important people in my life currently so yeah you know i can't wait i can't wait to see you guys soon so it'll be wonderful i Actually, yeah, we could all have a morning practice together in here, the three of us. Would I would love to come to Calgary. <laughs> but yeah, from Shakti and I as well, we would like to thank you for doing everything that you have been with the podcast. I think you've got a great podcasting voice, by the way. You should thank definitely you. do uh, more interviews and this kind of thing. I think it would be beneficial. How's your singing coming along? Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, to be honest, I surprised myself, so it's not too bad. I just got to do it in front of more people, I think. You're All amazing. Right. We like it. So proud of everything you do. Yeah, well, thank you so much. It means a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pleasure chatting today, Braden. Yeah, we love you so and much. No, it was really good, man. Thank you so much for doing this.